I'd like to speak with you about uh, this, this great man who has had an impact in so many of our lives, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. On January 19th, 1981, not long before entering the presence of his exalted nail-scarred Savior, David Martin Lloyd-Jones reflected upon his life. He shared the following with a good friend. When you come to where I am, there is only one thing that matters. That is your relationship to him and your knowledge of him. Nothing else matters. All our righteousness are as filthy rags. Our best works are tainted. We are sinners saved by grace. We are debtors to mercy alone. Daniel Rowland said at the end, I am nothing but an old sinner saved by the grace of God. I say exactly the same. Then with deep emotion and a break in his voice, the one whom thousands affectionately called the doctor said this, God is very patient with us and very kind. And he suffers our evil manners like he did with the children of Israel. Oh, the love of God. A month later, having by this time lost the powers of his speech, his daughter Elizabeth read to him 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, where Paul exhorts the people of God to not lose heart in the midst of pain and suffering. You know the passage well. Paul writes, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. When his daughter Elizabeth asked her father if this was his experience, he nodded his head with vigor. The great Welsh preacher was ready to go home. In fact, two days before he died, he wrote down a message for his family with a shaking hand. Do not pray for healing. Do not hold me back from glory. He wasn't held back. For on February 28, 1981, Martin Lloyd-Jones breathed his last and soared to worlds unknown, clinging only to the person and finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 13, 36, King David is described as one who served the purpose of God in his own generation. That certainly described and describes Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. God used him to make a powerful and lasting impact on a generation of Christians and Christian pastors the world over, not least the one standing before you now. I was first exposed to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in my early 20s. As a new believer, wrestling with the doctrines of grace, someone recommended that I read a book entitled The Puritans, Their Origins and Successors. Published posthumously by the Banner of Truth in 1987, it's a collection of addresses that Lloyd-Jones gave at the Westminster Puritan Conferences in London. I remember one passage in particular that was influential in and moving me towards a biblical view of salvation. Uh, Like many who wrestle with the doctrines of grace, I was wondering how this 
related to evangelism. How does this work? God is sovereign. He's electing and predestinating people unto eternal life. And, and we're also called to evangelize. How does this work? Well, contrary to squelching evangelistic zeal, Lloyd-Jones taught that the doctrines of sovereign grace and election give you a holy confidence and zeal in preaching and evangelism, leading us to cry out to God in prayer that He would be glorified as He saves and gathers His people to Himself, all for His glory. It helps to convince me of these doctrines of grace. During my seminary years and shortly thereafter, I consumed Lloyd-Jones's uh, multi-volume sermons on Ephesians. And then after that, I read all through his Romans. And then I read through his epistles of John and, and several other uh, volumes of his sermons. In fact, for years, I would read for my quiet times a sermon by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. It'd take about 20 minutes to read one of his expositions. The seriousness, zeal, thoroughness, and no-nonsense approach with which he explained and applied the Scripture, played a principal role in my own development as a preacher, not least in a commitment to preach the Bible, Lectio Continua. Moreover, like many of you, reading Lloyd-Jones' now classic book called Preaching and Preachers made a deep impression on my pulpit ministry. I have made it a required reading for students and interns over the years. One cannot be the same after reading that volume. And it would be wrong not to mention Ian Hamish Murray's masterful two-volume, 1,200-page biography. I read it 12 or 20 years ago. Anyone who reads it, especially those in ministry or preparing for the ministry, cannot help but be stirred by the amazing story of God's grace and calling Lloyd-Jones to ministry and the way God used him from humble beginnings in a small village in Wales to impact a generation for Christ. In addition to all of this, Ian Murray, who is a, a friend to many of you in this room, as he, is, as he is to me, he stayed with my family for several days. He became a friend and shared many wonderful stories about the doctor as we walked around our neighborhood lake. He worked with Lloyd-Jones for three years as an assistant to him in the ministry. And also with Lloyd-Jones began the Banner of Truth Trust Publishing I know many of you know Ian Murray and have been blessed by him and his friendship as I have. The doctor was not a flawless man, either personally or theologically. Nobody is. And he knew that. Other people didn't know it about him. <laughs> Some call him the 13th apostle from Great Britain. He is so beloved by so many that some would quote the doctor on any manner of, of, of issues or, or doctrine and esteemed him so highly that there was nothing one could say negative about him. And that's, that's not right. Lloyd-Jones knew he wasn't perfect. Indeed, the deep sense of his own weakness, sin, and need for Christ was what in part fueled his personal piety and his public ministry. Lloyd-Jones saw himself first and foremost as a wretched sinner. If you've read his sermons, you know that. A wretched sinner saved by sovereign grace in Christ and only then a Christian minister. 
Indeed, Lloyd-Jones ministered out of the overflow of his own Christian experience. He was not a duplicitous man, as so many ministers are today. He preached publicly what he knew, loved, and experienced personally. Lloyd-Jones and his preaching were owned by God. That is, in part, what made his ministry so powerful. He was a faithful preacher who walked with God personally in prayerful dependence and earnest sincerity. Of course, times have changed dramatically since the doctor was around. We live and minister in a very different world, the world of the iPhone and the laptop and 24-hour cable news and around-the-clock sports and advances in medicine. Even so, there is much to learn from his life and ministry. There's much to learn from this electric preacher, the one whose preaching J.I. Packer once described as having given him something related to an electric shock and bringing more of a sense of God than any other man. David Martin Lloyd-Jones was born in Cardiff, Wales, just before the turn of the century on December 20th, 1899. He didn't have much recollection of his time there since his father moved them from busy city life in Cardiff out to the country when he was just a small boy. His father, Henry Lloyd-Jones, sold his grocery shop and moved his family out to a small village shire called Langatho, where their home was one among only 60 homes in this small Welsh-speaking community. His father purchased a general store in Langatho, which served farmers from the surrounding district. Martin and his brothers would often assist their father in the store and loved doing so. From all accounts, Martin had a very happy, loving family. He spoke of his father, quote, as the best natural man I've ever known and the kindest character I've ever met. And his mother was described by him as charming and friendly. And though she did not know how to read, she was described by Martin as more intelligent than my father. Why do I think most of our kids would say the same thing about their mom? (laughs) Martin described his family life in those years as extremely happy and said that the clearest recollection he had was, quote, that of always having a house full of people. The main reason for this, he said, apart from the fact that my father and mother were very pleased to welcome friends and others to the house for a meal and a chat, was that our house was also a business establishment. Indeed, the house and the general store were both connected. Things were happy and uneventful for the Lloyd-Jones family until January of 1910, when smoldering ashes from a cigarette left that day by a local farmer in the shop caught on fire in the middle of the night. Thankfully, Martin's mom and eldest brother Harold were out of town, but the others were in serious danger. Amidst the smoke and the flames, uh, Henry Lloyd-Jones darted up the stairs and got the kids. By that time, there was so much fire downstairs, they couldn't go down. And Martin remembers this story of him and his, his father and his older brother throwing him out of the window and being caught by men in their nightclothes down in the street. By then, a ladder was brought, and Henry and Vincent climbed down to safety. While the Lloyd-Joneses were able to build a new home, the fire had devastating effects on their business and financial situation. So 
In Martin's teen years, he watched his father struggle to provide for his family, and even with some depression, which was very unlike his father. His father was very much an optimistic uh, person. Eventually, his father felt the need to, to go to Canada to try to find work. He had family there and thought he could perhaps find away. Nothing came of that, and Henry came home and announced that they were packing up and moving to London to find work and make a new life for themselves. In London, things changed for the better. Henry was able to borrow some money and purchase a dairy shop at 7 Regency Street in central London, only a short walk from Westminster Chapel, where, unbeknownst to him, to Martin, he would preach the gospel for almost 30 years. In addition to the fire and the move to London, the other major event that shaped Martin's life in his early years concerned his older brother, Harold. And June of 1918, Martin had contracted the flu. It was a violent flu and had taken many lives in the city. One of those lives was Martin's brother, Harold. He died at the age of 20 and was buried next to his recently deceased grandfather. It was a devastating loss. The happy childhood and home life in the small Welsh village, the fire, the bankruptcy, the First World War, the death of his brother Harold, all of these things had a great impact on Martin's life. And they were experiences that formed and shaped the man who would proclaim Christ to a generation and beyond. And it reminds us, doesn't it, brothers, that whatever we have been through, whatever God has brought us through, whether good or bad, it's all a part of the story of God's grace and providence in our lives to bring us to where we are now, to mature our faith, to prune us, and to foster in us wisdom for life, and ministry. It's important to remember that whatever has occurred in our lives in the past is never an excuse or a license for spiritual mediocrity and sin. It's all there given to us that we would grow and thrive and be wise in our ministries. We should never justify present sin because of past experiences, whatever those might be. This includes sexual sin anger problems, things like this. We need to take our past experiences to Christ for healing and strength and comfort and not let Satan get a foothold in our lives because of them. In a room this size with this many brothers gathered, there are terrible experiences in many of your pasts. Take it to Christ. Our identity is not chiefly in our past experiences or upbringing. Our identity is in Christ. In Him we have died to sin and and now live in the newness of His resurrection life. We must not forget this in ministry. Our identity is chiefly in Christ, not in our ministries, not in our success or failures in ministry, not in our backgrounds and what may have happened to us, but in Christ. Even so, all of these things are there to form and to shape and to prune us to be whom God would have us to be in ministry. This certainly was true of Lloyd-Jones. His growing up years taught him many hard lessons, and the Lord used them all to shape him into the man he would become. From his early teens, Martin knew that he wanted to become a medical doctor. 
At age 16, he began studies in a prestigious course at St. Bartholomew's Hospital. By the way, I was so happy to hear that he was a, a football, a soccer fan when he was 11 or 12. In fact, his parents were concerned because he didn't want to study. He just wanted to go out on a soccer field. Um, so if, you're, if your kids are like that, just know that there's hope beyond uh, the present. One of the leading medical schools in Britain, St. Bartholomew's, is where Lloyd-Jones went, and after passing his exams and receiving degrees in medicine and surgery in 1921, now aged 22, Martin began to work under one of London's most recognized doctors, Sir Thomas Horder. Horder was well known for his care of King Edward VII in 1910, and he appointed Lloyd-Jones as his junior house physician. He worked with Horder for three years and grew in his reputation as a physician. The potential for success and a future in medicine was, was limitless. In a sense, the world was at his feet. But something very interesting was going on in Lloyd-Jones' heart. He became unsettled. The prospect of a career in medicine with all of its wealth and status began to look unappealing in light of a growing sense of calling to preach the gospel. Many would wonder, why would a young man with an extraordinary and lucrative career before him consider leaving it for gospel ministry? Lloyd-Jones explained why. He grew increasingly uncomfortable with the scientific humanism that ruled much of the profession he was in. And that people around him were always dealing with the symptoms of the fall of mankind into sin, but never with the sin itself, only, and, and its only cure. Whether it was in the hospital, the political realm, or society in general, he noticed that only symptoms of sin were being treated and never the root problem and our ultimate need. Also, the early death of his brother and death of his father four years later made a deep impression upon him that life is short and unpredictable and that there is one thing that we need more than anything else, salvation in Jesus Christ. There was an urgency to preach the gospel that began to grip him and continue to do so for the rest of his life. Another thing that led Lloyd-Jones to consider a call to gospel ministry was a deep sense of his own sin and guilt and desperate need for God's grace. In fact, during this period, Lloyd-Jones became awakened to the seriousness of his own wretched spiritual condition and the unsearchable riches of, of God's mercy in Christ. He later, he later reflected, quote, that I am a Christian solely and entirely because of the grace of God and not because of anything that I thought or said or done. He brought me to see that the real cause of all my troubles and ills and that of all men was an evil and fallen nature which hated God and loved sin. My trouble was not only that I did things that were wrong, but that I myself was wrong at the very center of my being. Another thing that influenced Lloyd-Jones' decision to leave medicine for the ministry was the satisfaction he received while speaking in various settings like the Literary and Debating Society where he was invited to speak on various topics like the tragedy of modern Wales, attributing the problems of his native land to moral problems with biblical solutions. He loved speaking truth into the hearts and minds of people. Ian Murray explains, quote, a pull far more powerful than that of medicine had entered his life. God had become real to him. 
the truths which now thrilled him he had rarely heard preached, and yet knew that the same grace which, he had, which had come to him could bring people everywhere to real Christianity. Martin Lloyd-Jones, to the amazement of many, including family members, colleagues, friends, and mentors, left his high-ranking career in medicine to become a simple gospel preacher. Praise the Lord that he did. It was a spirit-wrought compulsion that he could not resist. He had a burning in his bones to proclaim the truth of God's word. He could do nothing else. And I think it's important to pause here and to speak for just a few moments about calling, which Lloyd-Jones himself enjoyed speaking about. Uh, Several of you uh, here this week are in seminary and, and are seeking wisdom and counsel about a potential call to ministry. Some of you may be perhaps ruling elders who are thinking of a possibly a second career, a second call, vocation into full-time ministry. I think Lloyd-Jones' call to ministry is instructive for a discerning and a genuine call to ministry because a call to ministry is more than just, I love Jesus and I'm not sure what else I want to do with my life. I think we should notice three things about Lloyd-Jones' call, which is instructive for us. Number one, he had a growing and burning desire above all else to proclaim the truth of God's word and the gospel. He had a growing and burning desire above all else to proclaim the truth of God's word and the gospel. There's nothing that you'd rather do. There's nothing that you are more compelled to do if you have a call to ministry. It's like fire in your bones, like Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.16. You feel the need to express, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. This perspective, of course, is very different than what I've seen among some who are pursuing the ministry with a kind of nonchalant, I'm not sure what I want to do with my life approach. An approach that views ministry as one option among many, waiting to see what might work out best for me and my family. No poor congregation should ever have to be subjected to a man who is unsure he even wants to preach the word. This, of course, isn't to say that we shouldn't honestly evaluate our gifts and calling as we pursue ministry. Of course we should. Just that men shouldn't pursue ministry simply because he doesn't know what else he wants to do with his life. While studying at New College in Edinburgh, there were all kinds of students from all kinds of backgrounds, uh, several from liberal mainline denominations. A husband and wife team from America, from the Presbyterian Church USA, were studying in my program. And I was speaking with uh, the the gentleman um, about his call to ministry, and and actually his wife, and his wife actually had a much more convincing story. (laughs) You know what he said? Well, I just really wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life, so I thought, hmm, I'll go to seminary and become a pastor. But that's not just the mainliners who are saying things like that, I think, these days. In addition to a growing and burning desire to proclaim the word, an authentic, uh, uh, an authentic call to ministry must possess a willingness to sacrifice a life of ease, privacy, comfort, and financial stability. A willingness to sacrifice a life of ease, privacy, comfort, and financial stability. Uh, Jane Austen in her novels features many 19th century vicars 
who are simply looking for a comfortable and quiet living as a, as a country parson. They are often depicted as worldly buffoons, which might describe some modern-day prosperity preachers, by the way. But a true calling is not driven by worldly comforts, but by God-centered zeal to preach the word, shepherd the flock, and reach out to the lost, to make disciples, and to plant and strengthen churches in all nations. Lloyd-Jones left what would have been a high-status position and a comfortable life in London for a small and obscure congregation in Wales. And he would have it no other way. Nobody can convince him not to do it. Once asked about giving up a promising career in medicine, he said this, quote, I gave up nothing. I received everything. I count it the highest honor that God can confer on any man to call him to be a herald of the gospel. Amen? Why are people so afraid to talk about the calling to gospel preaching as the highest calling that there is? Why is that so troublesome? Are we afraid we're going to make people feel bad that aren't preachers? All callings are blessed and glorious and important, significant. Yes, yes, yes. But there is nothing more important and significant than the proclamation of the gospel that will be declared and save people from hell. And we need to take this office more seriously and with greater dignity, brothers. If you've read Lloyd-Jones or heard him preach, you know that he loves to quote the Isaac Watts' hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. Number three, in terms of calling, there's a passion for others to know and possess what you know and possess. You have been captured by the grace of God, the loveliness of Christ, and the assurance of the Holy Spirit, shedding God's love abroad in your heart. And you want others to be captured by this too. We see this in Lloyd-Jones' life as the Lord moved him from medicine to ministry. He had met God and experienced His amazing grace. He desperately wanted others to possess what he now possessed. Christ, forgiveness, imputed righteousness, eternal life in the presence of God. He he, he talked about his own experience with God regularly. He wanted others to know it as well. Every call to the ministry will look a little different, of course, but they should all include a measure of these three characteristics that were true of Lloyd-Jones. And fellow ministers, we need to encourage our interns to seriously think about these matters before they commit to a life of ministry. I'm afraid that many don't. Moreover, it's important for seasoned ministers to evaluate our lives and determine whether or not we've lost that burning desire to proclaim the word that we once had. Whether or not we are passionate for others to have what we have. It seemed that the doctor possessed it for over 50 years. Say what you want about his doctrine of the Holy Spirit, which we will in a few minutes. The man was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he preached God's word faithfully for over 50 years. What about us? Have we let the thorniness and discouragements of years of ministry foster a a dispirited and even perhaps cynical attitude towards that which once put a spring in our step and put zeal in our preaching? As pastors, we are never supposed to mature 
past a simple enjoyment of God and His amazing grace in Christ. Being captured by God's love personally serves to fuel our ministry and preaching publicly. Walking with God is vital. And so if we could just for a moment, if I can encourage you to take time even this week, Twin Lakes Fellowship, go for a walk, go spend some time in prayer. If you are discouraged, if you've become cynical, if, you've, are, if you are dispirited in ministry, take time to cry out to God to bring that joy and passion back into your heart for himself and for the ministry. Pray that, again, you be captivated by your merciful God, a God who sings over you with his love and showers you with his amazing grace in Christ. Well, during this time, Martin married Miss Bethan Phillips on January 8, 1926. He had met Bethan in church at the age of 14 and had always been an admirer from afar. But it would be nine years after that they had first met that she, that she would show him interest and they would be wed. Their marriage, by all accounts, was a loving one. And according to Bethan, they never really argued in their relationship. That's, that's quite amazing. With a burning desire and urgency to preach the gospel and to do so among the poor and working class people, Lloyd-Jones decided not to pursue theological, formal theological education, a surprising fact in light of his vast knowledge uh, of an insight into scripture and history. Uh, through different uh, connections, Lloyd-Jones accepted a call to Sandfields Church in uh, Abravon, South Wales. It was a church in the Calvinistic Methodist tradition, a, a humble, traditional, working-class congregation with about 70 in attendance when he first began preaching. During one of his earliest days at Sandfields, he was being informed as to some of the ministries that the church had and that they aspired to have. But Lloyd-Jones wasn't interested. He wanted to get the congregation to renew their commitment to the most important meetings of the week. Morning and evening worship on the Lord's Day. Prayer meeting on Mondays. And on Wednesdays, the midweek meeting. It reminded me of the PCA's strategic plan a few years ago. Filled with all kinds of interesting things, but not with, let's get back to the prayer meeting. Let's reestablish morning and evening worship. Let's keep the Lord's Day holy. And let's do the things that God has promised to bless. And then maybe we'll think about some of those other things. This is the mind of Lloyd-Jones. After the drama ministry was scrapped very quickly, the doctor was asked about what they should do with the wooden stage in the church fellowship hall. You can heat the church with it, he said. They ended up giving it to the local YMCA. Ian Murray writes that, quote, the Sunday sermons were indirectly to indicate the meaning of these and other changes. The church was to advance, not by approximating to the world, but rather by representing in the world the true life and privileges of the children of God. The fundamental need was for the church to recover an understanding of what she truly is. Love that. There's a very important lesson here for us, especially for young ministers just starting out in the ministry. Let your faithful preaching, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, month after month, year after year, be the primary means of cultivating reform in your congregation. 
Do you want to see changes in the way the congregation approaches worship and liturgy? Preach the glory and the majesty of God. Do you want the youth ministry to be more serious and discipleship-oriented? Herald Christ crucified for rebel sinners every Sunday. Do you want your people to grow in holiness? Proclaim God's holiness. Proclaim the holy gospel and his holy commands for Christian living. This will do more to change your congregation's views of worship or church programs or Christian living more than anything else. Don't underestimate the transformative power of the faithful and weekly preaching of God's word. Amen? And don't overestimate your powers of persuasion or political maneuvering on your sessions. Preach the word. Watch the Holy Spirit soften hearts and transform your elders and your congregation. I once heard it said that soft preaching makes hard hearts and hard preaching makes soft hearts. I believe that. People are changed under faithful, earnest, biblical preaching. Or they'll leave. And that's good too. Some are trying to obstruct faithful gospel ministry. And they should leave if they don't want to to be under it. Lloyd-Jones believed these things deeply from the beginning to the end of his ministry. Lloyd-Jones preached his first sermon on February 6, 1927, from 2 Timothy 1.7, quote, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. As a part of his introduction, he explained his purpose as their preacher. Quote, Young men and women... That's interesting he said that. I think he was very young himself, but... Young men and women, my one great attempt here at Abravan, as long as God gives me strength to do so, will be to try to prove to you not merely that Christianity is reasonable, but that ultimately, faced as we all are at some time or another with the stupendous fact of life and death, nothing else is reasonable. That is, as I see it, the challenge of the gospel of Christ to the modern world. My thesis will ever be that, face-to-face with deeper questions of life and death, all our knowledge and our culture will fail us, and that our only hope of peace is to be found in the crucified Christ. In November of that same year, the 27-year-old doctor turned preacher chose as his text 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, a text that would in many ways be a controlling one for the entire course of his ministry. During his years at Sandfields, Lloyd-Jones' reputation grew as a preacher and his ministry widened. He was invited regularly to preach all over Britain and even a couple of times across the pond in the United States. The British weekly newspaper covering an event at which Lloyd-Jones was preaching a sermon wrote the following, quote, The Reverend Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who gave up a fine career in order to become a minister, informed us that he was to preach a sermon and not deliver an address. It was an inspiring experience, fresh, arresting, challenging, and moving. This man is a born preacher and is destined to become a great force in the religious life of our land. He is orthodox in his theology and thoroughly convincing in his mode of presentation of his message. He is the modern Moody for whom we are waiting. End quote. This reporter's response to Lloyd-Jones' preaching was shared by many, not least by the notable... Reverend G. Campbell Morgan, the American minister who had been preaching at Westminster Chapel at this sizable church at Buckingham Gate in central London. It was the church that Lloyd-Jones passed by countless times as a kid, 
and that he visited regularly as a student. Leaving South Wales after 12 years at Aberavon was not easy. Lloyd-Jones was a Welshman at heart, and he dearly loved his people. And yet he saw the Lord's hand in the move to assist Campbell Morgan with the preaching at Westminster Chapel. What was originally meant to be a temporary arrangement turned into a powerful 30-year ministry. From Westminster Chapel, the world became his pulpit. For a very thorough and detailed account of Lloyd-Jones' ministry at Westminster Chapel, I would point you to Ian Murray's engaging biography. It holds over 800 pages of fascinating material and provides, among other things, an interesting and insightful analysis of 20th century British evangelicalism. In Murray's biography, you can learn of the doctor's early ministry during the war years as men are sent off to fight uh, the Nazis and services are interrupted uh, at Westminster Chapel with German air raids and they're going down uh, into uh, uh, the tube down uh, below ground to uh, seek safety from the bombs. Uh, then there are the theological disputes with John Stott, J.I. Packer, and others over ecumenical issues and what constitutes true unity between churches. Moreover, there is the establishing of the influential Westminster Puritan Conferences and the Banner of Truth Trust, a publishing venture that began in 1957 and focused primarily on the republication of 15th and 16th and 17th century, or, or rather 16th and century, 17th century Reformation and Puritan works. These are all quite fascinating and inspiring and instructive aspects of Lloyd-Jones' life. But rather than recount them here, I would like us to spend the rest of our time thinking about some lessons that we can learn from this electric Welshman. Indeed, the question I want to ask is this. What can we, as 21st century Reformed ministers, learn from his life and legacy, from his strengths and weaknesses? What does his faithful ministry of over half a century teach us today? Many of you will know more about Lloyd-Jones than I do. But these are the lessons that I chose. You may have chosen different ones. Lesson number one really comes from Lloyd-Jones' own mouth. The preaching of God's word is the primary task of the church and the Christian minister. Oh, how we need to recover this. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross is the power of God on display. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what? Of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. To question preaching, brothers, is to question the wisdom of God. It is through the feebleness of gospel ministers employing the weak and foolish means of preaching that God has chosen to announce His glorious gospel and display His saving power. The means of preaching reinforces the message it proclaims boldly announcing to the ears of helpless sinners the good news that redemption has been accomplished for wretched sinners in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Preaching is designed by God to display His glorious power through weakness, not unlike we see on the cross. Really, this 
This man is the one who has come to save us? The one with the, the crown of thorns pressed in his brow? The one with spittle running down his body? The one who is nailed to a wooden cross? The one who's being mocked and taunted and is doing nothing? This is, this is the man who has come to save us? The preaching of the word of God, the, the preaching of, of this cross, the very method is reinforcing the message because the preaching is the foolishness. It is actually the power of God on display. We are preaching Christ. Really? Preaching is the way you're going to convince people to, to know God? Well, yes, because God chose this method and it's not to be replaced by any other. Ah, oh, we'll change the method, but the message will be the same. Oh, no. The message changes so often when the method is replaced. The organ of faith is the ear. For faith comes by what? Hearing. and Hearing by the word of Christ. This is a living and abiding word. And the word, Peter says, that was preached to you. Martin Lloyd-Jones believed this. He believed in the primacy of of preaching because the Bible teaches the primacy of preaching. And he passionately believed that the recovery of biblical preaching was what struggling churches in the mid-20th century needed most. He regularly made the point that for the church to experience renewal, it didn't need more programs or a bigger emphasis on social justice or more appealing music or a better understanding of one's cultural context. And all of these things were being brought out in his day as well. What the church and the world needed most was and presently is to hear the word of God trumpeted from pulpits all across the land. Only the gospel faithfully preached can make any true change in the hearts of men and women and in the society at large. Other aspects of ministry outside the pulpit were valued by Lloyd-Jones to one extent or the other. Obviously, the drama ministry wasn't. But none of these things, wherever they were on the spectrum came close to rivaling, to, to, um, to rivaling the, 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 the preaching of the Word of God. This conviction of the primacy of preaching was not born out of a self-focused effort to justify his existence and calling. It emerged from a deep conviction that God never speaks more clearly to his people or to unbelievers than through the faithful preaching of his Word. In other words, the doctor declared, quote, without any hesitation that the most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching. And as it is the greatest and most, the most urgent need in the church, it is obviously the greatest need in the world also. He expressed these words in his now famous book on preaching entitled Preaching and Preachers. The book is a compilation of his lectures given at the, from 1969 at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. If you've ever read this book... Uh, excuse me, if you've never read this book, uh, the first thing you need to do is to put on sackcloth and to throw yourself in the ashes. And after you've done that, get on Amazon and order the book and then read it. Uh, this is a book that, you, that will impact you deeply. Um, it's impacted thousands over the last 40 years. In his chapter on the primacy of preaching, he provides several reasons for the decline of preaching in the church. He names a kind of 
Liturgical formalism as one reason. Quote, a greater attention to ceremony, form, and ritual. Uh, made me nervous. I, a family was recently visiting a church, I won't tell you where, and they're moving to this area, and they visited this particular church, and, and they went and visited and said, Pastor, uh, uh, the sermon was, was maybe a little under 20 minutes. Uh, high liturgy, people wearing collars, lots of ceremony. I said, don't go there. Preaching's not valued. It's understated. It's being undervalued. We need churches that value preaching. I think it was MacArthur that said he can't even clear his throat in the first 10 minutes. <laughs> he also mentions the rise of Christian counseling as a deterrent to preaching and also the new architecture that decentralizes the pulpit. Still worse, he says, quote, has been the increase in the element of entertainment in public worship. The use of films and the introduction of more and more singing. The reading of the word and prayer shortened drastically. You have a song leader as a new kind of official in the church. And he conducts the singing and is supposed to produce the atmosphere. Then he goes on to say, but he often takes so much time in producing the atmosphere that there is no time for preaching in the atmosphere. This is a part of the whole deprecation of the message, he said. Brothers, if you only could see what was happening in churches today, with such an inordinate focus placed on music and singing to the displacement of the centrality of the word read and preached. Music and singing are so important for Lord's Day worship, we take it very seriously at Christ Church Presbyterian. But they are never the most important part, not by a long shot. The greatest care should be taken with the reading and the preaching of the scriptures, the sacraments, and prayer. These are the primary means of grace. The means that Christ himself has promised to bless, to mysteriously communicate himself and the saving benefits of his redemption to us, to his people. At least that's what the Reformed have professed for 500 years and that we've taken vows to teach. A few years ago, my family attended a Lord's Day morning service at a well-known evangelical Anglican church in Charleston. That morning, instead of preaching, uh, they had a youth choir concert. Lloyd-Jones would have never allowed for such a thing to happen. What God's people always need most is to hear the voice of God in the proclamation of His life-transforming Word. The preaching of the Word is life to us. It's life to our people. It's the pure milk that nourishes and strengthens and comforts our faith. It should never be marginalized or replaced. Lloyd-Jones mentioned another reason for the downgrade of preaching in his day, and it's a reason that should deeply resonate with us in our present context, and that is the idea that preaching is okay and all, but in reality it is ineffective compared to social action. The emphasis should be placed on our, on our action in the community and not on God's action in preaching. And whatever time we give to preaching, it should connect people to practical social needs and injustices taking place in our society. Lloyd-Jones explains it this way, quote, The people, they say, are not interested in preaching. The people are interested in politics. They are interested in social conditions. They are interested in the various injustices from which people suffer in various parts of the world and in war and peace. So, they argue... If you really want to influence people in the Christian direction, you must not only talk politics and deal with social conditions and speech, you must take an active part in them. 
If only these men who have been set aside as preachers and others who are prominent in the church were to go out and take part in politics and in social activities and philanthropic works, they would do much more good than by standing in pulpits and preaching according to the traditional manner. Not preaching, not the old method, but getting among the people, showing an interest, showing your sympathy, being one of them, sitting down among them and discussing their affairs and problems, end quote. Brothers, does it even need to be said that we see these same trajectories today? While it's important that we teach our people to hate and whenever possible stand against injustice, injustice against the unborn, injustice against our, our, our uh, uh, hating injustice against the unborn or racial injustice or injustice in the workplace. We, are, we should teach our people to despise these things and stand against them, and yet they should never become the primary focus of a church's message or mission. The task of the church is to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ from all of Scripture, And that takes time, and that takes a lot of effort and focus. And it's to make faithful application regarding the implications of the gospel that arise from the text, to make disciples and to plant gospel-centered, healthy, gospel-preaching churches. That is the task of the church and of the minister, to preach Christ and Him crucified from the whole counsel of God, just as Paul and the apostles did. That's what I always tell people when they talk about these things. Go and look at what the apostles were doing. That's our mission. Whatever else we might do, whatever things we might be involved in, they must never rival this primary task. In the shadow of the executioner's sword, the apostle Paul exhorted his disciple Timothy, quote, preach the word in season and out of season. He said this because preaching is not merely the passing along of information from preacher to, to people. It's God speaking. And it's God acting among his people to convict and save and sanctify and comfort and correct and discipline and encourage and to declare his fierce and abiding love for his people. This is what Lloyd-Jones believed and he regularly emphasized the need to preach with power and unction of the Holy Spirit, something which he believed was sorely lacking among Reformed preachers in his day. There was a lack of spirit-filled zeal in the pulpits of theologically sound preachers, a kind of detached coldness. In an address to the Westminster Fellowship of Ministers on October 9, 1968, eight months after retiring from a 30-year ministry at Westminster Chapel, the doctor had expressed that he had visited a considerable number of churches and sat under a a lot of preaching. In light of this, he suggested that the greatest danger in preaching today is the danger of professionalism. Quote, We do not stop sufficiently, frequently, to ask ourselves what we are really doing. The danger is of just facing a text and treating it as an end in itself with a strange detachment. He spoke against a kind of mechanical approach to preaching one that preaches the gospel in an overly objective and dispassionate way. The wife of a deacon once told Lloyd-Jones that she really enjoyed hearing a preacher recently and that he was, quote, unlike many of our Reformed preachers who are so dull. Lloyd-Jones believed that we needed to prayerfully cry out 
to the Holy Spirit for unction and power in our preaching. As we heard last night, to be filled with the Spirit as we preach. To to feel deeply what we are communicating to others about the holiness of God and the vileness of sin and the cleansing blood of Christ and the horrors of hell and the glories of heaven. How can we speak about these things with with such dullness? In this same address, Lloyd-Jones asserted that, quote, we can miss the wood because of the trees and lose the glory of the gospel. Our business is to send people away with the most glorious thing in the universe. Brothers, shouldn't this be evident in our preaching? Lloyd-Jones was not encouraging emotionalism or a kind of manipulation in the pulpit. Just that preachers would be earnest in their calling upon the Holy Spirit to bless and use the preaching of the word and bless and use the preacher as he delivers it. That we wouldn't enter our pulpits as a professor steps up to a classroom lectern. Do you believe what the Bible says about preaching? The Bible says that preaching turned a valley of dry bones into a living, breathing, exceedingly great army. Do you believe what the Bible says about preaching? The Bible says that Peter preached a sermon at Pentecost and about 3,000 came to know the Lord and were added to the church. Do you believe what the Bible says about preaching? The Bible says that God is pleased through the folly of what we preach to save his people. Do you believe what the Bible says about preaching? God's word says that when the apostles were in Thessalonica, that their preaching came not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Brothers, do you believe in preaching? Do you believe that? Your people will recognize whether you believe that or not. It's an important question to ask ourselves this week, especially for those of us who who are discouraged and deflated in ministry, who perhaps haven't seen the kind of fruit in our ministries that we were hoping for. Or for those of us who have, for one reason or another, slipped into the mindset that preaching is just one means of discipleship amongst a constellation of others. It's a critical question for those who have stopped believing that the Holy Spirit is fiercely committed to applying the Word of God to sinners through preaching. The Reverend Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was an electrifying preacher. When he stepped into the pulpit, he was a man in earnest, fiercely committed to preaching the Bible and giving his hearers what they needed most, an encounter with God in the preaching of His Word. The doctor, as he was called, was one of the greatest and most influential preachers in the 20th century, and his impact continues to this day. And he liked to talk about the romance of preaching as he's walking up to the pulpit, and I hope you brothers know this, as he's walking to the pulpit thinking, what's God going to do today? What's he going to do today in the lives of God's people? How is he going to encourage? How is he going to convict? How is he going to save? That romance of preaching. Preaching, according to Lloyd-Jones, is theology through a man who is on fire for Christ. May we know that. This quite naturally leads to the second important lesson that we learn from Lloyd-Jones. The minister's public ministry must never be divorced from a vibrant personal walk with God. If one reads or listens to Lloyd-Jones, he cannot but get the sense that this was a man of piety. A man devoted to prayer. A man who read his Bible, a man who walked with God. In his lectures on preaching and preachers, he highlighted the importance of private prayer and Bible reading for the minister. He did not see personal devotional life as 
unnecessary or as a temptation to legalism. He said, quote, from every standpoint, the minister, the preacher, must be a man of prayer. Prayer is vital to the life of the preacher, absolutely essential. The great men of God, the great preachers of history, he said, were always men of prayer. And we should follow their example, not just admire it. The same was true for personal Bible reading. A time to read and reflect upon the state of his own soul and to read scripture. Not just for sermon prep, not for Bible studies, but to nurture your own faith. To draw near to God, to constantly foster that sense that you are a Christian first and then a pastor. A member of God's household first and then a household steward. A sheep and then a shepherd. Lloyd-Jones believed that a vibrant personal walk with God is essential to a vibrant, vibrant public ministry. I won't say a whole lot more about that for time's sake, but I believe if Lloyd-Jones were here today, he would tell you that these things are essential for your spiritual well-being and a long, faithful ministry. So how will you change your schedule? How will you tweak your life and your schedule to spend more time at the feet of Christ, reading your Bibles and praying and being a man of piety? So many distractions in our day. Let us, let us flee to Christ every single day. I'll, 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 I'll be uh, open with you. I, I changed my schedule at the beginning of this year, wanting to have more of a focused, undistracted time with the Lord. And it has been wonderful. Pray for me that I'll keep doing that. And I'll pray for you. We are weak men. And we need to put on the spiritual armor of God every single day. Just because you're a pastor and you have degrees on the wall doesn't mean you are, you are beyond the need for a simple, personal walk with Jesus. Reading your Bible, praying. Don't, get ever, don't ever get past that. Third lesson. Dry and formalistic Christianity is odious to God and foreign to authentic Christianity. I don't, again, want to say a whole lot about this except to say that Welsh... And an English ecclesiastical context in which Lloyd-Jones, Lloyd-Jones lived and ministered were in dire need of spiritual life. Church membership was fast declining and there was a kind of Victorian-esque, formalistic, external, ritualistic approach to religion in Britain that he believed was not a true expression of biblical Christianity. He was not satisfied with what was going on. If people truly knew God, they will not simply go through the motions once a week on a Sunday morning. In a sermon from the opening verses of Acts 2, the the doctor stated that, quote, we must get rid of this notion that the church is a national institution or any other form of human institution. She is not a club or a society where people meet together and do certain things. I never like to hear people referring to a building as a church. I'm going down to the church, they say. But the church does not consist of a building. It consists of people, living souls with the Lord in their midst. We must, not get ri- we must get rid of this external notion, this idea of just paying a kind of formal visit upon God and then forgetting all about Him. That is religion, the very antithesis of the Christian faith. Lesson four. Proper attention must be given to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. We've been reflecting a lot upon the Holy Spirit this week, and we'll reflect some more. And uh, I know it's been as helpful to you as it has uh, to me. Only the severely inattentive reader or listener 
would miss the prominence that the doctor gives to the third person of the Holy Trinity in his writing and preaching. I would venture to say that this is what often makes his writing and his preaching so interesting and engaging to Reformed ministers uh, like us. He gives attention to that which is often neglected in our circles. But Lloyd-Jones really believed in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in, in worship, in preaching, in church life, and in his personal walk with God. He had, he had a holy expectation of the Spirit's work in people's lives, in his own life. And his zeal for this is infectious. That's why we keep reading his stuff. I'm so grateful for it. People experience the Spirit's power under Lloyd-Jones' preaching. I mentioned earlier J.I. Packer's response. He said that sitting under Lloyd-Jones' preaching was like getting an electric shock. In other words, it had a deep and powerful impact that was beyond words. An impact only that the Spirit of God can bring. You know how it is. You walk away from a powerful sermon. You don't want to talk about trivial things. You're just silenced. The Apostle Paul described this kind of preaching this way, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5, For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Oh, that God would give us that kind of preaching and blessing upon our preaching. This was a text that he liked to reference often. I'm afraid that that we can sometimes be guilty of referring to the Holy Spirit in merely doctrinal or formulaic terms, not relating to Him as the third person of the Holy Trinity, and thus not calling upon Him for power and strength and comfort and assurance as often uh, as we should and as we are privileged to do. Read John Owen's communion with God and read the section on communing with the Holy Spirit. We We need this teaching in our day. We aren't We aren't found earnestly and desperately crying out to the Holy Spirit to anoint and use our preaching. If we aren't careful, we can simply go through the motions in our preaching and in our ministries, preparing and declaring sermons in our own strength and and in the flesh and not in the Spirit, without a living and, and vibrant and joyful and prayerful expectation about what the Holy Spirit might do. Those who listen to this kind of preaching may wonder if the preacher really believes that which he is preaching. Their preaching is dull and boring and detached. Is this just a formal religious exercise, or is worship and preaching a living and dynamic meeting between God and His people, with the Spirit of God actively saving and sanctifying God's elect? If the preacher doesn't believe this, it's likely the congregation won't either. Many of you know the uh, story of Charles Spurgeon. As he ascended his pulpits, he would say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. He understood, he believed deeply, as we all should, that without the power and applicatory grace of the Holy Spirit, all of our preaching and teaching is in vain. Without the Holy Spirit, our worship services are dead orthodoxy. Shame on us if we are leading boring and dry and arid and dead worship services with with boring preaching. But Lloyd-Jones' pneumatology, his doctrine of the Holy Spirit, was not without its problems. Serious problems. Problems that have led to a tremendous amount of confusion over the past 50 years. Sometimes, because of our love and respect for an individual, we tread too lightly 
when it comes to doctrinal error. We avoid honest critique when we should be helping our people to understand the blind spots. And again, we all have them. We all have weaknesses and blind spots. None of us are perfectly balanced in the way we teach and preach God's Word. We need correction. For Lloyd-Jones, it was his doctrine of the Holy Spirit, which at best lacked clarity and balance, and at worst possessed serious error. It was shaped and deeply influenced by three things. I won't elaborate on these things. But his doctrine of the Holy Spirit, remember he did not have theological training, formal theological reform training. And he was very influenced by Welsh Calvinistic Methodism, which was highly experimental and focused on revival. Always praying for, preaching on, and thinking about revival. Secondly, there was the formalistic and spiritless religion in Britain. Already talked about that. This dead liturgical orthodoxy. Millions going to church and not even being touched at all by the power of God. Thirdly, there's the Great Awakening. He lived in the Great Awakening. He loved the Great Awakening. Always talked about it. Always quoted Whitfield, Wesley, and Edwards. And these men had a great influence on his life. Lloyd-Jones posthumously published sermons under the titles Joy Unspeakable, The Baptism of the Holy Spirit, and Prove All Things, The Sovereign Work of the Holy Spirit, originally preached in the mid-60s, 1960s, are his most controversial works. Though his teaching on these controversial aspects of his pneumatology are sprinkled all throughout his writings and published sermons. The teaching is so inconsistent with Reformed principles that some argued that the doctor was, I believe unfairly saying this, uh, that he had suffered theological Alzheimer's disease when he was uh, preaching these sermons. But that is hardly the case, since many of the books edited by his own hand in the 50s set forth these very same teachings. In a chapter entitled Lloyd-Jones and the Charismatic Controversy, found in a book called Engaging with Martin Lloyd-Jones, the authors carefully outline by no means insignificant connections that Martin Lloyd-Jones had with pioneers of the charismatic and Pentecostal movements in America and Britain. Before studying for this lecture, I was unaware of all of the connections that he had with these charismatic leaders. In fact, many of these charismatic leaders were upset that they were being affirmed privately by Lloyd-Jones, but Lloyd-Jones would not speak publicly in affirmation of many of their views, which we would consider erroneous. Many of us would anyway. It was the doctor's teaching on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the sealing of the Spirit that caused the most controversy drawing mainly from the book of Acts and Ephesians 1 and Romans 8, as well as a constellation of of historical examples, mainly from times of revival. He taught that there was such a thing as a second, an additional work of the Spirit. In the words of his grandson, Christopher Catherwood, quote, he believed passionately in the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a distinct post-conversion experience, as well as as believing in the continuation of the spiritual gifts of the early church, the apostolic gifts. What did he believe about the baptism of the Spirit? I will not elaborate on these. I will simply name them for time's sake. He believed that it was a sovereign work. Uh, You may never get this. There was a careful stress by Lloyd-Jones that God gives this. It's not something we can manipulate him into getting or that everybody gets. It's a sovereign work of the Spirit. Secondly, it's not received at regeneration. It's separate, an additional work. Thirdly, it's given to empower witness and mission in the world. 
Fourthly, it's an immediate work of God. Not necessarily through the preaching, not through the word. It's an immediate work of God on the person. Fifthly, it's inexplicable. It's hard to describe this movement of the Spirit. And he also spoke about it in the categories of raptures and states of ecstasy and and what we call today being slain in the Spirit. Think of Edwards riding his horse into the forest and being overwhelmed with the love of God and weeping and so on for, 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 for a long time. What are the marks of being baptized with the Holy Spirit? Well, he gives lots and lots and lots of historical examples, subjective experiences of men. He talks about the uncommon sense of the glory and presence of God. Things are vital and real to us when we have this baptism, according to Lloyd-Jones. There's an assurance of the love of God to us in Jesus Christ. Baptism gives us highest, the highest form of assurance, he says. There's a joy and a gladness. There's a, a desire to glorify God. There's a light and an understanding. There's, there are even facial appearance changes. Well, she says, this is going to be a surprise to you when I say this, but there are facial changes, the, the beaming on the face. He gives scriptural examples. One speech becomes different. Their boldness, clarity in the gospel. And then, of course, highly connected to this doctrine is his, his desire for revival, where large numbers of people are coming to Christ. This is what he wants. This is what he desires. One can imagine how the critiques came. Many influential Reformed leaders were raising the red flag and warning that this teaching was of a charismatic nature and should be rejected. In January of 1964, John Stott gave a lecture entitled The Baptism and Fullness of the Holy Spirit. In it, he encouraged those, quote, who had some unusual visitation of the Holy Spirit not to teach others to seek a baptism of the Spirit as a second and subsequent experience entirely distinct from conversion, for this cannot be proved from Scripture, he said. Lloyd-Jones retorted with a sermon not naming Stott by name, refuting Stott's teaching. Donald McLeod at the Free Church College in Edinburgh, in response to the doctor's teaching on the sealing of the Spirit, wrote that, quote, the need of the hour is to confront the new Phineism. Instead, the most highly respected figure within Reformed theology speaks in such a way that the new charismatics claim him as one of themselves and with some plausibility. He goes on to write, quote, the views now being put forward by the doctor imply a serious disparagement of the ordinary Christian who is portrayed as lacking the baptism of the Spirit, the sealing of the Spirit, and even the earnest of the Spirit, the down payment that Ephesians 1 talks about. By any standards, these are serious defects, and yet, allegedly, they characterize most Christians. The most disconcerting thing we have is a theology of plus, he goes on to say, which is which in its various forms has bedeviled the Christian church. For the Galatians, it was Christ, it was Christ plus circumcision. For, medical, for, for medieval Catholicism, it was Christ plus the sacraments. For Wesley, Christ plus sinless perfection. For dispensationalism, Christ plus an earthly millennium. For Pentecostalism, Christ plus the Holy Spirit baptism. Now from within the very bosom of Reformed theology, there comes the same plea for more. Not merely for growth or progress, but for a new definitive experience which will put us in a special category. We reject the whole concept of plus, end quote. It was after the doctor's death in the mid-1980s that his teaching on the baptism of the Holy Spirit began to make a huge impact and to spread all around the world in charismatic circles. His grandson called the doctor, called his grandfather basically a Reformed charismatic, and so that's what many 
envisioned him to be for their movements, kind of the leader of their charismatic movements. Renewal movements in the Lutheran church and in the Anglican church claimed him as their theologian. Whether they were right in doing so or not is, can, is left up to you. It's essentially, these reasons are what Westminster Chapel became a few years later after his retirement and is to this very day. In 1986, in Glasgow, the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland, a denomination that split from the Free Church in Victorian times, simply called the We We Freeze. I thought that was interesting, the We We Freeze. They passed a formal censure on Lloyd-Jones in 86 because they were worried about how his charismatic teaching might take root within their communion and other Reformed denominations. Several years ago, while spending time with Reverend Eric Alexander, he shared a story with me and a couple of others that were sitting with him that in his study, Martin Lloyd-Jones asked him to kneel down. And he wanted, uh, you know the story, Lloyd-Jones wanted Eric Alexander to be his successor. And at one point, when Eric Alexander was going to preach at Westminster Chapel, he asked, Lloyd-Jones asked him to kneel down, and, and Lloyd-Jones put his hand on his head and prayed that he would receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. An entire lecture could be devoted to this topic. A topic that, in my humble opinion, cannot be ignored when reflecting upon the doctor's extraordinary life and ministry. Some of you, and you've mentioned it to me already, are just now dipping into Lloyd-Jones. My encouragement to you is to read him. Read his sermons. Read his biographies. Be encouraged. But read with care as you consider his doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I want to end on a high note, briefly, on Lesson 5. The love of God is a resounding refrain of faithful gospel ministry. Lloyd-Jones said, quote, The greatest characteristic of the greatest saints in all ages has always been their realization of the love of God to them. Brothers, make no mistake about it. That which will fuel your preaching and ministry the most, that which will fill your preparation and delivery with uncommon zeal and affection, that which will instill in you a holy expectation of what God will do with your preaching is a clear view of the love of God in the gospel. A clear view of the love of God for you and for your family and for your church and for the lost. Dear brothers, knowing and experiencing the love of God, the depths of God's love for you personally, for you, for you, dear brother, dear preacher, his love for you is key to your preaching. And it is essential to a long and faithful ministry. Sometimes preachers get beat down with stress, with complaints, with inactive officers. Where are the deacons? They're supposed to be at evening worship. We get, we get beaten down with criticism, often for doing the right thing. And we get discouraged. There's a lack of encouragement from those you are pouring your life into every week. Perhaps, dear brother, you have forgotten how loved you are. Have you? Have you forgotten how loved you are by God? That is what will fuel your ministry more than anything. That was the message of Lloyd-Jones. Christ did not just give his life for your people that you preach to every week. He gave his life for you. 
He gave his life for you, dear brother. That will compel you to preach the love of God. John writes, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and given his son to be a propitiation for our sins. It is the love of God that must be the hallmark of our ministries and our preaching. Lloyd-Jones said, what then is the chief thing? What matters? The chief thing is the love of God, the love of souls, a knowledge of the truth and the Holy Spirit within you. These are the things that make the preacher. If he has the love of God in his heart and if he has a love for God, if he has a love for the souls of men and a concern about them, if he knows the truth of the scriptures and has the spirit of God within him, that man will preach. That is the big thing, he says. The other things in relation to preaching can be helpful, but keep them in their right place. In the end, it was the love of God that captured and shaped the heart and mind and ministry of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And one can hardly read or listen to him without hearing the glorious refrain of the love of God for sinners and always talking about himself being one of those sinners. That's always where he brought his listeners to, the great message of the love of God and the gospel of his son, and he never tired of preaching of it. Let that be a lesson to us, brothers. Whatever our ministries are emphasizing in our churches, may none of them eclipse the brightness and the glory of the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. And may that show in the way that we love each other, the way we as pastors relate to our people, May they see the love of God in us. Lloyd-Jones' funeral took place in London on March 6, 1981. I find it interesting that that was my 10th birthday, living in Santa Clara, California. I was oblivious of the great Welsh preacher who would one day have such an extraordinary impact on my own life personally, and still does. Though dead, his life and ministry and legacy still speak. I thank God for the electric Welshman, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who has touched and is still touching so many lives today. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this time reflecting upon perhaps the greatest preacher of the 20th century. We ask, Lord, that you would grant us even a small measure of the blessing in our ministries, in our preaching that he had in his. We do not ask for a second blessing, Lord. We pray that we would walk in the Spirit, that you'd fill us with your Spirit, that we might be filled not with the world and with ourselves, but with your Spirit and with Christ, and that we would proclaim him unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. We pray in Jesus' name.